listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 281. It is First Friday Q&A, Mark. How's it going? You know what question I should ask? What? Where's the allergy medicine? Oh, man. My allergies are killing me. Yeah, you sound like you're having it rough. Yeah, so if I sound any more gravelly than normal, that's why. <laughs> oh, look at the reviews page. Oh, well, if you listened to the last episode, I hope you guys remember me saying they got colorful. So I'll let Mark read the five-star one. Great show. Been listening a while and really like your show. Was a little surprised by your comment that Exxon is leaving Texas. Think maybe you just saw they sold a field in Texas in Barnett Shell. They have a lot of other stuff going on in Texas. From Parent 2 from the United States. And Parent 2, you're absolutely right. I went back and looked at an article. And what Exxon said is they were exiting some fields in Texas. And I just read it the wrong way. So thank God Exxon's staying here <laughs> in Texas. And people, listeners, when I make a mistake and you catch it like that, please let us know. There's plenty of that in this question. Oh, is there? In these questions, yeah. Yeah, so really appreciate the review. Really appreciate you reaching out and letting me know I was wrong. All right, so we have a one-star. Politicized garbage. First review I've ever left after using Apple products for over a decade, but after listening to these two for nearly 20 minutes, I feel compelled to do so for further listening may hinder my mental ability to actually read and write. Firstly, I'm from the UK, so I have no real political bias when it comes to the U.S. politics. But in mentality, picturing the hosts, they're in a wood-paneled room with a Confederate flag on the wall, and it probably stinks of cigars. All I wanted was a podcast that gave me actionable information regarding oil and gas production and any problems that may be on the imminent horizon. Instead, I feel dirtier for having spent 20 minutes trying but failing to get to the end of this Republican, the new type, not the decent old type, big oiled sponsored awfulness. If you have a five liter muscle car on the drive with a bumper sticker about the Second Amendment, then enjoy. Otherwise, I'm not sure this is the podcast for you. That's gold. That is pure gold. Well, couple things. So no Confederate flag. The room doesn't smell like cigars. Not a five liter, but a three liter car and not a Second Amendment, but American flags. I definitely have that. You know, I'd love to know, reviewer, if you're still listening, let me know what show you listen to so I can go back and listen to it. For years, we intentionally never talked politics on this show. And at some point, we decided that it was such a major factor in the oil and gas industry that we had no choice. But I don't think we ever talked politics for 20 minutes unless it was something that was going on about the industry itself that was being politicized. So sorry that you think I'm not we sorry. Suck. But whatever. <laughs> but Unfortunately, you know, there's like a couple million people that don't think we everybody's it. entitled to their own opinion. hundred percent. So that doesn't bother me at all. All right. So we're going to start off the show as always with Ludwig. What should the Dutch government do to end energy poverty? Now, roughly 40% of the people is behind on energy bills and 20% will fall behind within a couple months. So with 60 being cut out of electricity and gas, what should they do? Today, the government announces its destructive laws for the year. Some interesting info. Blockturin is no longer producing for NL, but for export. 78% of electricity is government fees. 82% of gas is government fee. This is a massive European problem, and the Hoff household will survive. <laughs> so, Luthwick, 
your government has decided to put a cap on energy. I think they're getting ready to spend almost 24 billion euros to cap your citizens' energy bills, both natural gas, steam, electricity. Unfortunately, somebody in the future is going to have to pay that back. When you put a cap on bills and the government pays the providers the difference, that's basically like a loan. And at some point, somebody has to pay that loan back. So I think the Dutch government's doing what it can to keep energy bills from getting higher in the Netherlands. But at some point in the future, you and your fellow Dutch people are going to end up paying either additional taxes or additional fees to pay this back. So there is no solution. And what happened in the Netherlands, it's happening in Europe, it's happening here too, is six years of five years of bad decision making by your politicians, you're paying the price for it now. You got to pay the piper. There's no magic way to get around it. Mm-hmm. All right. Next one came in from LinkedIn. Nicholas Boudire, U.S. exporting of Finnish gasoline. Good morning, Mark. First, I discovered the Oil & Gas podcast only about five months ago. My wife has been on me for a couple of years to give up on old man traditional radio. Enjoy the hell out of it. I was listening to this week's podcast this morning and noted you covered the story of refinery higher-ups meeting with our clueless Secretary of Energy regarding the threat to cap or freeze refinery exports if they did not bring gasoline prices down. I thought I heard you say that the U.S. does not export finished gasoline. I was curious about that and went to the EIA site where it appeared to show that we do export some. Certainly nowhere the levels of crude oil and LNG exports. Looks like Mexico takes about half of our finished gasoline exports. Would this be right or am I missing something? Y'all, please keep doing what you're doing since discovering the podcast. I've recommended it to several friends and coworkers. Thanks, dude. Nicholas has a good Cajun name. Yeah. So, Nicholas, you're right. I was wrong. I didn't realize that we export that much gasoline, but also to your point, it's a drop in the bucket compared to everything else that we export. And you're also right. The majority of the gasoline, the finished gasoline we export goes to Mexico. So, once again, when I said that we don't export any gasoline, I was wrong. We export some, but nowhere near the volume as we do of other stuff and petrochemicals. Next one's from Christian Shok. Hi, Mark and Paige. Congrats on the podcast. Light, informative, and fun. I appreciate the format and will remind you to share more equally time to U.S. and global subjects. Another suggestion is to maintain the dedication on clarifying to non-oil and gas listeners about the importance of the industry. But I find important to have a collaboration mindset as more or less renewable, all energy-related matters and sources are of relevance nowadays. Finally, I'd like to ask, if you don't see water becoming a commodity that has always been underpriced and will become super valuable and important factor for all industries, including oil and gas, in terms of cost, technology, and market prediction aspects, it might be something to consider for 2023 predictions. Keep up the good work. Yeah, so a couple of things here. We do talk about renewables, but we talk about renewables when it affects the oil and gas industry. I'll say it again, I love renewables. They have their place. But this is oil and gas this week. It's, this is not the renewables this week. We don't have a show like that, and we probably won't. If you are looking for a show like that, go check out Nico at Suncast Network. He's basically the OGGN on the renewable side of the house. Does great work over there. But like I said, we do talk about renewables where it makes sense. And the oil and gas industry has a lot to do with the current state of renewables as a lot of the breakthroughs in renewables we actually invented because we tend to operate in the middle of nowhere. So we've used renewables forever. We've helped invent a lot of the technology in renewables. And on the show, we'll talk about it, where it affects the oil and gas industry. And the water thing, you know, it's funny you brought that up. That's actually been one of my concerns for a decade. It's not that we're running out of hydrocarbons. It's not that 
We're not going to be able to feed the world. It's not that we're going to be able to end plagues. We're going to run out of fresh water. One of my predictions for next year actually touches this a little bit. I think we've actually been saved. A large part of our fresh water is used for agriculture. We've gotten really good at becoming more efficient at that. And we've also gotten really good at transferring that efficiencies to other countries that don't irrigate as efficiently as we do. And I was worried about population growth. And by feeding the world's population, I was worried that we're going to run out of fresh water. A lot of aquifers here in the U.S. are at very low levels because of agriculture. I think it's going to fix itself. The problem's going to fix itself. You are right. Fresh water is something a lot of people don't talk about. It can be a scarce commodity. So yes, 100% water is super important, but I think we're going to be okay there. All right. If you want to know the details, wait till my predictions come out. There you go. All right. Next one is from Matt Gart. Great job. Listen every week. Are you aware of any deep dive analysis of whether the minerals required to meet California's or any other state country's electric car goals are even available? Why doesn't anyone talk about the massive strip mining and the environmental degradation that will take place, not to mention the disposal of the spent battery material and subsequent replacement? And apparently the water consumption required for lithium production is staggering. So all truth here, and we got to be real careful. What we don't want to do is adopt mentality and techniques that people use that hate the oil and gas industry and start pointing out all the negatives. Everything you just rattled off is legit. It's real. But you can mine responsibly. There's other ways to mine other than strip mining. Strip mining is horrible for the environment. You've all seen pictures of this where there's massive open holes in the earth. They've removed all the tree cover, all the topsoil. They just dig up big holes straight down. They use explosives to blast up the minerals, heavy equipment to move around. Super bad for the environment. The other thing you asked about where the minerals will come for these batteries, the world doesn't have enough of the minerals, the critical minerals it needs to electrify uh, all the passenger vehicles that we're going to need, quite frankly. And those minerals aren't all over the world, unlike hydrocarbons. So China has a lot of them. I think uh, Chile, Australia, parts of Africa like the Congo have it. Like I said, they can be mined responsibly, although in countries outside of the Western world, they don't really care. They try to do it the cheapest way as possible. Specifically to California, there presently is not enough cobalt, lithium, and nickel. Literally, there's not enough of it available to be able to replace all the vehicles in California with electric vehicles. Doesn't mean in the future it won't be there. My thoughts around that, it's not legit. The internal combustion engine is too efficient. It's too inexpensive. There's a lot of efficiencies that we've driven in the last 10 years with technology. Electric vehicles are great. I actually love electric vehicles. They're fast, right? I just want the self-driving ones. Well, that's actually a good point, but that self-driving technology works equally well no matter what powers the car. It's not connected to being an electric vehicle. The problem with electric vehicles, quite frankly, is the battery, which is what we're talking about. But there's other ways to power the electric vehicles, such as fuel cells. So our fleet, what we drive around has changed. It was not that long ago that what we used to get around on required hay. And now we've gotten away from that, right? Yeah. So, So our mix will change and electric vehicles will become more and more mainstream for where they make a good fit. What we need to do is quit subsidizing them and letting the market take care of what you're going to use and then what parts, pieces, and minerals it needs to create those vehicles. Right now, we're officially here in the U.S. leveraging the electric vehicles. They get tax credits. They get discounts. Mm -hmm. But one of the cool things about the IRA is they're actually enforcing the fact that if you're going to sell electric vehicles in the U.S., the parts and pieces have to come from the U.S. I like that. The IRA? Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. And the reason I like that is it keeps us from buying 
precious minerals from areas like the Congo, where quite frankly, 11-year-old little boys are working their butt off 20 hours a day in the filth and the mud to get these minerals so somebody could drive a Tesla, a Tesla in Los Angeles. I like the fact that we're going to fix that problem. Okay, next one. HK Landry. Do you believe that the gas will start flowing after the end of the war in Ukraine? Seems a cynical view after all the bloodshed, hardship, and especially among nations of free will. So, HK, yes, it's actually still flowing. We talked about that earlier, about the bitterness between the Russian and Ukraine people and the war that's going on, the fact that Ukraine has not only withheld Russia from taking over, but actually pushing the troops out of its country. And yet the gas still flows because both Ukraine and Russia make money from it. Yeah. I don't expect that to change at all. I actually expect Ukraine to have more leverage. If Ukraine takes over some of the territories that it historically owned in the past, they'll actually have operating gas fields themselves. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So let's see where this war goes. Quite frankly, he's scraping the bottom of the barrel. His troops are deserting left and right. They're grabbing people off the streets and criminals to try to keep the war going. That's not a long time game, right? That's yeah. going to quickly. That's going to be very short term. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll see. And then the kind of cool thing about that, if I'm right about all that, is then we're going to have another country that is putting hydrocarbons on the market that benefits them and also will benefit us and in Europe because they're going to need pipelines, they're going to need compressor stations, they're going to need blowout preventers, mm-hmm. and all those parts and pieces and engineering expertise that come from here in Europe. So I think once the war is over, I think it's going to actually look pretty good. Okay, next is from John Kilgore. Uh-oh, Mark, you forgot <laughs> to answer his question from last month. But it's okay. He says he loves what you're doing. And that question is, why don't the super majors push back publicly against all this false and negative information about the oil and gas industry? Would it be in their best interest to have the facts out there? You're singing my song, John. I've been singing this song for a couple (laughs) of years. And I think this year, actually presently today, you know, the end of October in, in 2022, if the super majors and the big nationalized oil companies would get together and actually start helping educating our young people, this is the time to do it. A lot of the world is questioning this unnatural push into renewables because it's cost them so much money to live because of high energy prices. Mm-hmm. This would be a great time to do it. To answer your question, two things. First thing, here in the U.S. and in Europe, the super majors are public companies. They have shareholders, and they worry about saying or doing the wrong thing that affect their shareholder value. I, quite frankly, if I was a CEO of ExxonMobil, I would yank all of my corporate communications and PR, and I'd go find some young, nimble PR company that is proven track record of communicating facts to our world's youth and I'd hire them, right? It's the old way of doing it. It's just not working. And we don't need to fight back, but we need to educate better. And we're just not doing a good job of that. The other thing is, quite frankly, Exxon's having record quarters. Chevron's having record quarters. Shell would be if they would have paid attention to what Exxon and (laughs) Chevron are doing. So in some ways, there's no financial incentive for them to push back. So I understand why they do it. I don't agree with it. But that's what we're here to do. We're here to get the facts out about this industry. Thanks, John. And I'll try next time not to skip your question. Well, don't ask so many questions, John. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. Tom Willard. Love listening to the podcast on my commute in London. Would like your perception on this issue. For us in insurance, scheduled turnarounds for refineries and rigs are important for maintenance and preventing losses from occurring. COVID caused large disruptions, engineers being in the quarantine, et cetera. And now with record crack spreads, and high oil prices, we are seeing turnarounds being delayed even further, causing risk to increase. The last thing we need now is a spate of potentially avoidable outages from sweating the assets too much. When do you see regular turnarounds, maintenance schedules, and resuming more generally how prominently or lack thereof does 
insurance feature and normal business operations. Please keep up the good work and hopefully a trip to Houston will coincide with one of your industry mixers. Regards. Yeah, Tom, if you ever make one of our industry mixers, make sure you come find Paige and I and introduce yourself. I love it when we have listeners come to our mixers. Oh, yeah, that's the best. So I can only answer this from the U.S. point of view because I'm not familiar with the insurance and the requirements in the rest of the world. And unfortunately, some parts of the world, even the major operators don't carry insurance. They're self-insured. So here in the U.S., the insurance on a turnaround and also on the assets of the refinery or the petrochemical plant are part of doing business. You know, they worry about things about people getting hurt, having environmental impacts, PR issues, cyber attacks, and all that. They mitigate that risk with insurance. As far as getting back to normal turnarounds, you're absolutely right. What's happening is in the world, the constraint right now and in the very near future is lack of refining capacity. And so nobody wants to bring these units down to do planned maintenance or repair, which is what a turnaround is. Number one, because they're making money hand over fist. Number two, there's literally, we're trying to help the world. So what they're doing, to your point, is they're going to run these assets further along than they normally would, knowing that there's going to be an increased cost and they have to go back and do planned maintenance repair, but they're trying to help. And yes, they're making money, but they're literally trying to help the world. So I don't see them here in the U.S. getting back to normal scheduled turnarounds probably till 2025. I think you'll see get there a little bit in 2024, especially with some of the smaller refineries and some of the units of the bigger refineries. But as an industry here in the U.S., I don't see them getting back to normal planned maintenance uh, till 2025. Oh, now we have an anonymous one. I used to work on... Actually, let me stop you. So we're not going to say this person's name. I actually changed the name to anonymous. He actually put his name in there. And then at the end of this, he asked us to remain anonymous. We talked about it. So people, we don't want to accidentally make a mistake. If you want your question or comment to be anonymous where it says name, put anonymous, please. Yeah, that's what I had to fix on another one that's yeah. coming up too. All right. I used to work on the upstream oil and gas side as a field engineer and have since made my way over to the manufacturing side, working at a smaller plant that does not deal with HHC. With that being said, we still need to perform API inspections on how much our storage tanks, pressure vessels, piping, and PSVs as part of our mechanical integrity program <laughs> that's incorporated in PSM. With that being said, my friend who builds upstream production facilities has virtually no mechanical integrity program. Has PSM just not made its way over to the upstream side? I know it's working its way into midstream, but I'm curious if we need to see more of it on the upstream side in the future. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are you absolutely work in this industry because of the acronyms you use. So PSM, Process Safety Management, it's all part of mechanical integrity. PSVs is uh, safety valves. And so basically what he's asking is in his experience, there's a process and a set of rules and a set of standards put out by API to check your valves as part of your mechanical integrity program. And he's asking if he's seen a whole bunch of it but he doesn't see it in upstream. It actually is all over the place in upstream. Yeah, It's just called something different and it's a different world than on the storage side. A lot of this type of work is done by third parties so they can have independent third-party inspections besides the operator. And also remember this, the operator, which in this case, let's say it's Exxon, when they actually start drilling, the only person on that drill ship that is from Exxon is what's called the company man. There's only one person from Exxon. The rest of it's the service company and the drilling contractor that's running that rig which also has their own mechanical integrity and process safety management programs. So it is very heavy on upstream. It's just not built into the normal workflow like you see it on storage. It's built into the workflow of the drilling contractor. And then again, 
to the service companies that help operate that drill ship. And then also finally, it's finally checked off by a third party that reports directly to the operator. So it's just in a different part of the workflow. It's there. You just don't see it. Yeah. All right. Another anonymous. Love the podcast. I'm a full-time MBA student at Rice University and I'm pursuing a career in oil and gas energy investment banking here in Houston, Texas. I have a great background in accounting and finance, but zero energy experience. A lot of the questions I will be asked are regarding my motivation for wanting this specific job. Why do you want to be in baking? Why Rice? Why Houston? Why energy? I have great responses for all of those questions except for why energy which is asking what specifically I think about the energy industry is interesting or why I'm personally interested in working in it. I know this is supposed to be a personal answer, but any help from you guys on why y'all enjoy the energy industry so much would be a big help. I've been listening to the pod for a few months now, but a lot of this stuff is very foreign to me, and so I'm having trouble coming up with a creative answer. Thanks in advance for any help, guys. You want to start? Why do you love this industry? It's a big-ass family. Prosperity is a big part of it. The things oil and gas does to help people live their life with, and it not cost as much as it would if, say, it didn't exist. My first answer to that, too, is also the people. I've worked in a lot of different verticals in my career. I've seen a lot of different countries, a lot of different individuals. This industry, like Paige said, is like a family. I can go to another country that I don't speak the language find a rig or a pipeline or a petrochemical company and start talking to them and they'll invite me over for dinner. Right. So that's the big part. The other thing is, I think this is the coolest, most high-tech underrated industry on the planet. And you're coming in this anonymous from a financial side. Dude, the financial complexities in this industry, if you knew how many different deals are made before the oil even gets out of the ground, right? And all these different joint ventures and all these different payment points and things like smart contracts and it is crazy cool stuff. And then you layer the technology on top of it. You know, I said this before, and I've gotten hate mail from the, as much hate mail as a rocket scientist can actually write, but I've gotten some pushback on this. You know, I'll put an oil and gas engineer against a NASA engineer any day yeah, of the week. exactly. We do the coolest stuff, but we have to do it on budget, on time, and it has to work and nobody can get hurt. So there's so many things I love this industry. To Paige's point, it brings prosperity to the world. Without our industry, modern lifestyle would not be possible. Mm-hmm. It is super cool, high tech, and some of the best people on the planet work in this industry. So for me, that's the passion I have. So hopefully that helped you. And by the way, we are launching an oil and gas finance podcast. So stay tuned. Yep. Just interviewed the host. I'm looking forward to it. I actually told him this. I said, I never thought in my entire life would I think that finance would be interesting (laughs) or fun. And he said, the F is for fun and finance. All right, so Cameron Johnson writes in, the Washington Post wrote an article on October 6th saying that transportation is the largest source of climate pollution in the country, accounting for about 27% of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, according to the data from the EPA. In the episode from 622, so June 22nd, Mark said that if you could remove all passenger and commercial vehicles off the road, U.S. pollution would only drop by 1%. What are your sources? Because I'm a bit confused here. Yeah, what a great question. My sources are actually the EPA. And I have to go back and listen. If I don't believe I said all passenger commercial vehicles, I think I said all passenger vehicles. So when the EPA looks at transportation, they lump basically everything that moves stuff together. 
So if you look at the car that you drive, the internal combustion car you drive, that's what I specifically mean. If we could remove all of our passenger cars with the wave of the magic wand, our emissions would drop 1%. But mixed into that group, when you look at all transportation, is things like diesel locomotives who have no pollution controls, over-the-road trucks, so 18-wheelers, once again, no pollution controls, tugboats, no pollution controls, all of Maritime, no pollution controls. Now, the other thing you got to be really careful here is pollution up until recently was measured in a lot of particulate and noxious gases that were emitted, right? So things that could cause cancer, cause asthma, trouble breathing. Then lately, they've added greenhouse gases. So if you're counting CO2, which is what they're doing now in the EPA as greenhouse gas emissions, yes, the CO2 is up, but quite frankly, CO2 not only does not cause cancer or asthma, it's good for the world. It's plant food, right? So you got to take out the CO2 they're talking about and then separate all of the other transportation method, over-the-road trucking, diesel locomotives, maritime, all that stuff, and then just look at the passenger cars. Our passenger cars are so clean. So my 2020 Infiniti QRS at 80 miles an hour puts out about 7% of the pollution that a 1968 Mustang puts out cut off in the garage. I know that sounds impossible, but... You got to remember that 1967 Mustang had no catalytic converter, had no sealed fuel system, had no lean burn technology. In fact, the gasoline air ratio was controlled mechanically by a carburetor, right? It was horribly inefficient and it literally put out pollutants, put out particulates while it sat cut off in the garage. So our current internal combustion engines, say for the last seven, eight years, are incredibly clean, incredibly efficient. It's all the other transportation sources that aren't. Good answer. Great question, actually. Yeah, all the way back. Okay, so Mark and Paige, Quadrilla Resources is the company that drilled two shale gas wells in the UK and holds vast licenses for shale exploration in the UK. The US is not the only country with private mineral oil and gas ownership. Approximately 10% of the mineral estate in Canada are privately owned, a small percentage of minerals that are also privately owned in Australia. In the UK, the vast majority of minerals are owned by the government. However, there are some minerals which are privately owned by the nobility. Respectfully, Doug Sandridge. Thank you, Doug. He reached out to me on LinkedIn. so he's, He reached out to both of us. Yeah, he's doing some fact-checking for us, which I appreciate. And he's 100% right about all of this. He heard me talk before about the two wells in the UK and that company. I didn't know the name of it, so he's right about that. So when I say the US is the only country that private individuals can own a mineral rights, I knew that in the UK, the nobility owned offshore rights. I didn't know the thing about a little bit in Canada and Australia, but in the grand scheme of things, from a percentage-wise, he's 100% right that there is some private ownership in Australia and in the UK and a little bit in Canada. But in the grand scheme of things, when you look at percentage-wise, it's pretty close to being that the US is the only country that has private ownership of mineral rights, with these few exceptions that Doug was so grateful, graciously able to explain to our audience. So thank you, Doug. Yay. Thanks, Doug. All right. Next one, Angela Williams. Mark and Paige, I love what you're doing for the industry and for the world. This podcast is by far the best one out there. A while back, you had a woman write in who was struggling to get the right FR tops to fit. Well, Paige, it looks like the three of us are in the same busty situation. (laughs) (laughs) I took your advice and checked out Bulwark's line of FRs, and oh my God, they are incredible. Plus, they are cute, so thank you very much for the recommendation. Also, finding the right sports bra to wear under your FRs is super important, and I'm struggling here. I'm honestly jealous of some of my smaller coworkers who can wear any sports bra they want and it works. Paige, any recommendations on sports bras and those of us that work in the field? 
because this is kind of a weird topic, I think I'm just going to reach out to you directly, Angela, and fill you in on that. And anybody else that wants to have that conversation, look me up on LinkedIn. I don't think this is really appropriate for an oil and gas podcast. Maybe not this one. Yeah. It's not a bad question. It's, no, it's not. I just... Gray area. It makes me a little comfortable talking about that because I also know there's probably a bunch of guys that don't want to hear about it. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, reach out to me directly. Actually, I'm going to shoot you an email and answer your question. So, okay. So on the next one from Bill Foreman, guys, I'm one of your biggest fans. I just love your podcast. My only ask would be for more regular releases of episodes, but you're improving. So no complaints. Well, thank you. We're trying really hard. Two questions. Why do you think the oil and gas industry is so behind the times on marketing? And how can we make improvements with upper management is so scared to do anything new like social media? And Mark, if Paige does the beauty blog thing, I think you should do one as well on your workout diet and lifestyle. Just saying. Yeah. So the reason the oil and gas industry is so behind times on marketing is that it's behind times on a lot of stuff that doesn't have to do with moving hydrocarbons, getting them out the ground and turning the stuff you can sell. The other thing, quite frankly, if I, if I really back up and think about it, a lot of what we do doesn't need to be marketed. It's a commodity that people just buy, right? And yes, there's competition and the, the companies that work in this industry compete with each other. Um, but there's not the need to to really heavily market your product or service and people are going to buy it anyway. Now, when I back up even further from that and I look at what has happened to this industry because of their lack of modern marketing is we have this enormous public perception issue, right? If we would have been marketing our industry properly, we wouldn't have that right now. Also, the fact that young people or, or a lot of people now don't want to come work in our industry because of that negative public perception. So I think a lot of it is that we're risk adverse. There's not a huge need to be on the cutting edge of marketing, but all that's changing. I'm watching uh, Shell. Shell just hired a head of TikTok. How cool is that, right? Mm -hmm. So Shell sees the fact that there's value in marketing on the platforms that younger people are using. And I think you see much more of that. If Shell does that well, that's going to give them a head up on, on recruiting and retaining talent, which is one of the big constraints right now, which means their competitors, Chevron and Exxon and BP, are going to have to do the same thing as well. Chevron has a, a journalistic team right now. They're putting out this, some great content. So I think it's changing. I think the industry was lucky enough that it wasn't forced to change like a lot of business to consumer companies that were forced to have to adopt marketing because their competitors are doing it so fast. But I, it's coming. And then how can you make improvements with upper management being so scared of doing anything new like social media? Once again, you have to show them the results and you have to let them know that the risk is being contained and minimized, right? And also that if they don't do it, their competitors are and they're going to get left behind. Like the whole TikTok thing that Shell, Shell's doing. I guarantee you people at Chevron and BP and even Exxon right now are looking at that going, if Shell does it and we don't, what are the consequences? Mm -hmm. So I think even some of that. Now, specifically, if you're talking about having a conversation with upper management, I think I would bring up the fact that it is changing and that if we continue to not change that it gives us a huge competitive disadvantage. And so by changing and bringing new stuff in, you can let upper management know that it's going to allow them to compete in the market. No matter how old your upper management is, they spend a lot of their time fighting their competitors to, to keep market share or gain market share. So they understand about not falling behind to, to be competitive. And then if Paige does a beauty blog thing, I think you should do one as well. No, <laughs> I'm not doing one. No. I'll, I'll set you up an Instagram. No, I right? am not doing that. Number one, I'm too busy with other stuff. And the, the little bit of content I am able to create is either helping tell the true story of the oil and gas century and get the facts out there 
or it helps us spread the word of OGGN and my original company, Modal Point. So I don't want to do the beauty blog thing. I don't and, think you have time. How and, many podcasts are you doing right time. now? I'm on two. And as, you're about to be on, on a third one. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so I I'm can, sorry, Bill. And, and honestly, there's other people much better for you to pay attention on social media as far as working out and diet and lifestyle. No kidding. <laughs> All right. So like we do a lot of times for First Friday Q&A, let's do the week in petroleum history. All right. This week, petroleum history, Union Oil of California was founded. In 1890, oil pipeline constructed the first two-inch iron, cast iron pipeline, been start transporting oil for five miles in uh, Pithole, Pennsylvania, to the Miller Farm Railroad Station. So the first oil, oil pipeline was uh, uh, built in Pennsylvania. I can't believe they used cast iron. Yeah, I was going to say, mm, that makes me want to go cook something. First time East Texas oil field was discovered on Widow's Farm. Uh, they had a crowd of 4,000 landowners, leaseholders, creditors, and spectators watching while the daily Bradford number three wildcat weld was drilled, shot, and did a gusher. Nice. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's Daisy Bradford. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, first California oil well in 1876 after three failed attempts. Charles Mentry California Store Oil Works Company discovered the Pico Canyon oil field north of Los Angeles and drilled and operated the first commercial oil well. Awesome. I bet they're turnover in their graves right now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> then, hey, if you want to advertise with us, it's easy. It's cheap. Go to OGGN.com, hit pricing. You can advertise on this show or any of our other gazillions of, of oil and gas podcasts. And we're actually starting to see results come back. We just started this about a month ago, and we're actually driving some really good results. Good. Weekly rig count. Uh, U.S. is at 769. We're up seven. Canada is up one at 216. And internationally, we're at 879, up 19. Can't beat that. Yep. You know what else you can't beat? Um, I'm not even going to touch that one. Join in our LinkedIn group. <laughs> our page, yeah. So just go to LinkedIn, type in Only Gas Global Network, and just join everything that pops up. And while you're out there on the interwebs, if you'd like to ask a question like you listened to today, it's pretty simple. Either go to OGGN.com or go to oilandgasthisweek.com, ask a question. And you also can submit questions via Twitter at official OGGN. And if you're on TikTok and Paige discovers something that's interesting from you on TikTok, that might make it in the mix as well. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of hard to come across, but they're there. And then if you want to know about all the oil and gas events, conferences, and expos that are going on, sign up for my monthly oil and gas events newsletter. It's free. We put everything in your inbox once a month so you don't have to run the interwebs and try to figure it out yourself. Then if you want myself or any of our experts to come speak, do a live podcast, maybe even do a lifestyle blog, just reach out to me. I'm happy to share the details. Huh. <laughs> All right, Paige, you ready to get out of here? Yes. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com. Oh,